0: So this morning, we're in Jeremiah chapter 31, and I think I typed that a couple times this week as 32, um, because we were in 23 two weeks ago, and we're just hopping through these kind of odd-numbered chapters here, but we were just in chapter 29 last week, so I'm not going to do a big recap, because we've only just kind of skipped over one chapter. We're in a section, chapters 30 through 34, that are sometimes called a letter of consolation or I think there's a different term for that, I might have mangled that, but these chapters go together and there's a theme of consolation that we're at the point where the armies of Babylon are at the gates of Jerusalem for a second time. They've already defeated Jerusalem back in 597, and that's when several uh, of the Jews were taken into exile, including most famously Daniel, but also the royal family and many of the skilled artisans and craftsmen, the most valuable citizens of Judah, were taken to Babylon to serve the Babylonians. So some of the exiles already happened, but Jerusalem is still standing for the moment, but it's at the brink of utter disaster, the disaster that Jeremiah has been warning about for 29 or 30 chapters. And at this point, we have a change in the tone of Jeremiah's message from the Lord because the time for warning is kind of over, and the time for consolation is here because they're about to experience utter disaster. And here we are in chapter 31 with a message of hope. That even though disaster is imminent and the city is about to be destroyed and the walls will crumble, and the temple is going to be burned, and all these things are about to happen. Anything that didn't happen in round one is going to happen to the city in round two, and it's going to be terrible, but there is hope. And the fact is, you may have heard the phrase that God doesn't waste trouble in the life of a believer. He always has a purpose for it. He has this habit of bringing good out of the bad. God's purposes continue without hesitation, without delay. God never experiences a setback. Now my plans, setbacks are very common. I don't know about you, but my plans don't always work out. But God never experiences a setback. When we see something that seems like a bad thing, God is not surprised, God is not dismayed, and God's plan is not in any danger of failing. In fact, everything that's about to happen that's bad, God already told them it's going to happen several times. Not just through Jeremiah, but all the way back through Moses. So here we are, and the tone of the message has changed. God needs to assure and encourage the people that even though their city, their glorious capital city, and the glorious temple is about to be sacked, and this time totally destroyed by the king of Babylon, that there is still hope for the Jews. So that's where we are here in chapter 31. That's why we see kind of a different kind of message from Jeremiah as he speaks here. So we're gonna see some assurance. Uh, Let me get into that here. We're gonna see assurance of a future restoration under the theme God redeems. God wastes nothing. You know what I hate? I hate when I find the coupon and it expired yesterday. Did you hate that, right? And now we even have digital coupons and you have to like look really, really closely at your phone and see what that little date is when they expire. I love coupons, I love free stuff. I know I had to buy the burger, but I got the fries free, isn't that great? So when you redeem that coupon, you're, you're getting the value out of it. And that's the point. Do bad things happen in this life? Yes, but does God pull value out of those bad things? Absolutely. God can bring good, right? Romans chapter eight, God can bring good uh, into our life out of everything that happens to us. So he is redeeming, he is taking this tragedy of the fall of Jerusalem and he is saying this is the beginning of a timeline that ends in hope, that ends in prosperity, that ends in a better relationship between God and his people. All that's ahead of us, and that's what we're going to get into in verse 27 through 34. The Lord here is establishing a new covenant. We might even say that this point in history marks the utter failure of the old covenant. Not because God didn't hold up his end of the bargain, but because the people, it was it was never really possible for a sinful people to walk in harmony with a holy God. And under the law, they had to live up to God's expectations. And repeatedly, time after time, the people of God failed God, refused to obey God, did not walk in obedience to God. And the result was ultimately that the covenant would fail because although God kept all his promises, the people didn't, have, didn't keep their end of the bargain. And here we are. Over a hundred years ago, Samaria fell due to their disobedience, and now the southern city of Jerusalem was going to fall, and there was going to be nothing left of the kingdom of Israel. They were going to be totally off the map for a while, for a while, right? We know how long, right? Seventy years. So for now, though, this is the utter failure of the old covenant. Again, it's not that God didn't know it was going to fail. He knew it inevitably fail, as we're going to see as we read the scriptures, even Moses knew this arrangement was not going to last. Not because of God, but because of human sinfulness. So a new covenant was going to be needed, and that's the exciting part. That Now that God has demonstrated to us that we cannot live wholly on our own, we're going to need some help, we're going to need a Messiah, we're going to need a Savior so that we can walk with God in a covenant that doesn't break down because of our sinfulness. And so right here in the midst of total failure, God is saying, I knew that wasn't going to work, but you need to see it for yourself. And now I'm going to tell you the great thing I'm going to do. And in about 600 years, by the way, I'm going to send you Jesus. So that's where we are in the story. A new day is coming. And it's looking ahead to the gospel that we sometimes take for granted, but that you didn't know anything about the gospel yet. But this new day with was going to come, and they were about to realize, well, I guess our plan didn't work out after all. But a new day is coming a day for planting and rebuilding, a day for personal responsibility, and a day for a personal relationship that we as believers today enjoy on a daily basis. A much better way to relate to God than the Jews had at that time. So that's what we're going to take a look at today. A couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, how do God's compassion and restoration, how do those balance with his justice and his punishment? There's a balance what is that there, closet? I think that's the balance call of some sort, that's probably a, some kind of hamper alert or something hamper alert. Yeah. going off on everybody's phone at once, so that's always a great thing to have. All right. So. Um, if you see any missing children in the room, please let me know. It'll work out right away, okay? No, you cannot volunteer yourself as a missing child. Okay? I'm sorry, I'm not it. God is full of compassion and God restores. But in today's story, we're going to be very confident of the fact that that is balanced out by the fact that he is just and he does punish sin. So with both of those, and and we've talked about it before, some people have this errant idea. This is a false teaching that you must not accept, you must recognize for what it is, a false teaching. There's a false teaching that the God of the Old Testament is mean and the God of the New Testament is nice, that the God of the Old Testament judges and punishes and the God of the New Testament only loves and forgives. And the fact is that God has always done both. Old, he has forgiven sin, We see that in David's life, and he has judged sin. We see that in the the backdrop of our story today. And throughout the study of Jeremiah, we've seen that. In the New Testament, God judges sin. Have you read the book of Revelation? God also forgives sin. And he did send Jesus, but Jesus had to die a miserable, awful death on a cross to pay for our sin. God remained just and forgiving throughout the ages So understand the balance between the two as you go in our story, we're going to see aspects of both of that. And then what showed we need a new covenant with an unchanging God, I already spoke to that some, maybe spoiled that question a little bit, but continue to think about that as we go through the story today. So today, dreams of redemption is going to be our theme as we work through the fact that God redeems. And it's kind of cool that the the message today comes to Jeremiah in the form of a dream. So dreams of redemption. And remember, on the eve of the destruction of Jerusalem, I'm not sure it's exactly the night before, but we're right at the time. Where if you go on and study chapter 32, you know the message there is, yeah, destruction is imminent. It's about to happen. I'm sending, uh, you're not going to be successful in this siege, but Nebuchadnezzar is going to wipe you guys out. That's the message of chapter 32, that the time has come. We are mere days away from the fall of Jerusalem, and in that backdrop there, this Jeremiah has this dream, and this dream is a dream about the future, and the future is bright even though the present is dreadful. Did you ever think, you know, that life would never get out of the pandemic, but here we are in three years later in 2023 at the time of this recording, and life is pretty much in a lot of ways gotten back to normal. Okay, so Jeremiah is looking ahead at the end of the story. Isn't that encouraging to look at the end of the story? Speaking of the book of Revelation, that we might have trials and tribulations now, but we have a blessed hope of what's to come. And that's kind of the idea. There's this dream of redemption is coming, even though judgment has arrived. So four parts of that. Hopefully we'll be able to get through all of those as we start with verse 23 today. So here we are. Let's look at verse 23 through 26. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. When I restore their fortunes, they will once again speak this word in the land of Judah and its cities. May the Lord bless you. Righteous settlement. Holy mountain. Judah and all its cities will live in it together. Also farmers and those who move with the flocks. For I satisfy the thirsty person and feed all those who are weak. Verse 26, at this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been most pleasant to me. So Jeremiah wakes up. He's hearing this message from the Lord again, as we said, in a dream. And he wakes up and realizes God had said this to him. And, you know, there's just sometimes you wake up and, boy, you just... You slept good. You know, maybe you're at one of these hotels or something to advertise. You sleep here and you'll you know, you can conquer the world the next day. Or is it or if you eat the right breakfast, cereal, you can do all these amazing things. Well Jeremiah had, had a word from the Lord and he woke up and you know, life around him was not pleasant. Cities under siege, food getting scarce, scary situation. Especially if you're the prophet of the Lord has been saying for years now that The city's going to fall. So Jeremiah knew what was coming. Just a matter of when, right? The anticipation must have been horrible. And then he wakes up refreshed from sleep because the Lord gave him a vision. Sometimes we just need a word from the Lord. And he got one. He's looking ahead and not not just the Lord, but the Lord of armies, or your translation may say the Lord of hosts. God, who's in charge of all the heavenly armies and all the angelic armies of the world, has given him this message. Now, I'll tell you what, I'm sure if we ever saw the, the armies of Babylon, they would have been terrified. They would have been really impressive for their time. Now, not today. We just rolled up a couple tanks and they would have gone scattered, right? But for the day in the Iron Age and when Babylon was the preeminent kingdom of the world, they had the chariots, and they had the horses, and they had some mean-looking dudes and soldiers, and they were a fierce, they were feared worldwide. But they don't hold a candle to the army of the Lord. Just let some angels show up and, and, and see, you know, get their swords out and and start waving them around like the one that the angel Lord did in front of Balaam's donkey. And those stalwart soldiers would have thought twice about charging in the battle against the Lord's armies. So the Lord is the one who's really in charge. Remember, it's not that God slipped up and the the Babylonians just kind of showed up and wiped his country off the map. God sent them to Israel as a judgment for their sin, right? We've seen that before. The whole conversation God has with Habakkuk in that book of the Bible, that the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are there on God's... They're doing God's will. God sent for them. God brought them on purpose. So all of this, remember, good and bad that happens in life, God is in charge. And here he says, the one who's in charge of all the armies and angels of the world, also the God of Israel, notice that personal connection. Now God had made some promises to Israel. Some of them were conditional. And Israel was about to suffer the price of their kingdom already had, so the kingdom about to. But he said, I am the God of Israel. I'm the one who gave you the promised land. I'm also the one about to take you out of it. But I'm also going to restore you back to it. And that's the amazing thing. It's not amazing that some empire, the, the, you know, the empire of Judah arose for hundreds of years and then, and then died out. That's not the surprising thing. The surprising thing is God brought them back to life, right? That's the thing. That's the miracle of Israel we often refer to. Like what other country, you know, um, you know, can, there's, there's a lot of countries you can't find anymore. All right. uh, where, where are the Babylonians today? How about the Assyrians? How about the Persian Empire? There's some Arabs living in Persia, but it's Iraq and Iran, all right? There's a lot of these key. Where's the Roman Empire today? Alexander the Great, his empire, where is that? But Israel's still here. Israel keeps coming back because... The God of Israel said, I'm giving you this land forever. And I might have to take you away from it and teach you a lesson, but I'm going to bring you right back to it. There's going to be a restoration. Isn't that, isn't that cool? I'm going to restore their fortunes. And, you're, and there's going to be some stability here. Look at that last part of verse 23. May the Lord bless you, righteous settlement, holy mountain. Now, that's part of the problem is that the people were not righteous and holy. That's why they're going to have to go into yeah. exile. But he's going to restore them and there's two things here there's the stability it's going to be a settlement right a settlement um when when you go on vacation and you show up at family's house or at a hotel you don't say this is my settlement because you're going to only be there for a few days it's not a settlement it's just a visit a settlement implies we're going to settle here and remember what the message was just recently that jeremiah said When you go to Babylon, you need to settle in. You need to build houses and vineyards, right? We just talked about that. And because you're going to be there for 70 years. But they're going to come back and they're going to settle back into the promised land and be there for years. That this is not like we're just going to have a tour of Israel be home in seven days. They're going to be back in their land. They're going to settle. They're going to build houses eventually. It's going to be, you know, a couple of decades away, but they're coming back. And God's going to settle them in the land. Next to the holy mountain. What holy mountain might that be? Are there any mountains around Jerusalem? It's Zion. Zion. it's yeah. <laughs> Could be Mount Zion. The Psalms talk about Mount Zion. Mount Zion, you can see it from the city, is right there next to Israel. There's also another really important mountain involved. So I'm not sure which mountain it is. I first thought about Mount Zion. But there's a mount that has a really important building on it, isn't there? The Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, which we believe, the Jews believe, that they built the temple on Mount Moriah. If you remember the story, Mount Moriah was where Abraham took Isaac... They went away from the other man, and he laid the wood. And remember when I, Isaac said, Father, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And he said, God will provide. And remember when God tested Abraham and said, you're going to have to sacrifice your only son. Now, we haven't talked about the connection before. I'm not sure if I'd even made that connection. But if the temple was made on Mount Moriah, what? notice the richness of that story on the same mountain where Abraham was willing to offer Isaac, although God stopped him and didn't actually make him give his one and only son. When we studied the Gospel of John, God's one and only son was walking on that same mountain, if the tradition is correct, in the temple teaching the people. And then just outside that city went to a cross to die for our sins. So on that same location where Abraham was willing to offer his only son for God, God offered his only son for us. Now that's a holy mountain. So regardless of whether we're talking about the temple mountain, the reason why that might be relevant right now is because God's about to destroy that temple. But he's going to rebuild it. It's going to re- be rebuilt in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Before Nehemiah, the days of Haggai. In the days of Zerubbabel, in about 70, 100 years, it's going to take them a little while to get that temple rebuilt, even after they come back. But God's looking ahead at this mountain, says, I'm about to demolish this temple. I warned you I would do it. You didn't think I would destroy my own temple, all right? But you didn't understand how angry I am about your sin, Israel and Judah. I'm even going to destroy my own temple. You've defiled it anyway. I don't even want it anymore, Okay? But on this, inside of both of these holy mountains, the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, and Mount Zion, I'm going to rebuild you. I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. So there's a marvelous, just, you're about to see it destroyed with your own eyes in mere days. But I promise you, God is saying, I'm going to rebuild it. Before your, not before your eyes, but before the eyes of your descendants. May the Lord bless you, righteous settlement, holy mountain. There's the other part of it. That there's going to be righteousness and holiness in the land. That's why it had to be destroyed, because this is a very sinful land. We've gone through the list. They broke this by every commandment God gave them in this generation, Habakkuk.
1: They're lying, and they're
0: stealing, and they're murdering, and there's they're, sexual sin in the land. It's, there's idolatry, right? They, they went down the list, and they pretty much broke all ten of them, right? This society is so far away from God that judgment has to come. But somehow, it's going to be a righteous self. And they're going to be able to dwell in view of God's holy mountain without having to worry about going into exile again. How's that going to happen? Well, that's where the rest of these verses are coming in. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So as we get into that, let's just look at one little reference. I just want to remind you, back in chapter 23, that God was so angry at the shepherds of Israel that weren't taking care of his people. But in this story, especially in verse 24 and 25, do you see the picture of God being a shepherd? And there are several ways we could have gone here as far as a cross reference. We can think again about Jesus being the good shepherd out of John chapter 10. We could talk about Psalm 23, a beautiful picture there of God being the shepherd and leading us by still waters and leading us through the valley of the shadow of death and fearing no evil because we're under his care. And God is taking them out, and he blamed the bad leaders, the bad shepherds, but he's going to bring them back. He's going to take care of them. And again, the description in verse 24 of our chapters, the farmers and their flocks are going to come back, and I love verse 25, don't you? God's speaking, for I satisfied the thirsty person and feed all those who are weak. That's the compassionate side of God. That's God the provider. Isn't he Jehovah Jireh? The one who provided the lamb for Abraham when he went to sacrifice Isaac and he got to sacrifice that ram that was caught in the thicket by its horns, which made it a, a, a lamb without blemish because if it had been caught by his, by his leg, he would have had scratches all over and he wouldn't have been a valid sacrifice. But God provided exactly the sacrifice Abraham needed at the time he needed it so that he could not give up his only son. And that's the kind of provider God is. And he's exactly... I did mention God's going to raise up godly men to be shepherds in the days of Nehemiah. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But remember the thing that made God the the maddest? Was that the shepherds were not taking care of their own sheep. They weren't taking care of the people. (coughs) Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. You've scattered my flock and driven them away. This is what he said back in chapter 23. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. Notice that, even back in verse 3, implied there was going to be an exile, that God was going to drive the people out and then bring them back later. Now we're looking at the end of the story. After the exile, he's given them hope. I'm going to bring you back. I'll send shepherds that will care over you. They won't be dismayed, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. That's more about bringing them back. But now in chapter 31, he's saying... I'm going to satisfy the thirsty and feed all those who are weak. I'm going to be their shepherd. I'm going to provide everything they need when I bring them back. In fact, even though they're going to go through this terrible, terrible sight of seeing their city ransacked, when I bring them back, they're going to be better off than when they left. And so this is the pleasant dream that Jeremiah has. That yes. You're gonna have a couple bad, really bad days, Jeremiah. You're gonna have a reason to weep, weeping prophet. And you're gonna write the whole book of Lamentations over just seeing your city destroyed before your very eyes. But the story ends well, I'm going to restore my people. Is there application to us today? As we go through hard times, as maybe our political systems break down Do we maybe need to be encouraged and remember to read the last chapter of the book? and know our story ends well, no matter what happens in this life, no matter what health issue arises, no matter how our politicians fail us, no matter how many bad choices we get on every primary or presidential election, no matter what city ordinances seem to be going against us, no matter whether our message is popular and whether people love or hate us as, as, as believers, that there is hope at the end of it, because you know what God wants to do? He wants to give you pleasant sleep and let you wake up refreshed and happy and, and full of hope, even though the world around you maybe doesn't look so hopeful. So part one of Jeremiah's dream is there is a stable contentment. That God says, you know what I have for you? I have you being a sheep next to still water who fears no evil. And if that's not you today, maybe Jeremiah's message is for you. That whatever happens this week, God is in control, and God is going to restore us one day, and God is going to take care of us. He's going to satisfy the thirsty. And yes, he is going to provide everything we need. Don't put your hope in this world. This world will let you down. Don't put your hope in the people in this world because those people will let you down because they're only human. But God will never let us down. He will feed the weak and satisfy the thirsty. And if that is our hope, we can wake up with refreshment. And we'll talk more about this dream here as we get into the next couple of verses. So a stable contentment. And we move on to verse 27 and 28. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. That is a very familiar phrase by now for us as we study Jeremiah, isn't it? This is the Lord's declaration. Jeremiah, makes sure he says, I'm talking, but God is speaking. This is what God sent from from him to you. And by the way, not only does it happen throughout the book, I think it happens like, uh, the count is like five times in our verses alone this morning. All right. Look, the days are coming when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of people and the seed of animals. Just as I watched over them to tear down, to demolish and to destroy and to cause disaster, so will I watch over them to build and to plant them. (coughs) This is the Lord's declaration. So even in these two verses, he said that twice, didn't he? He wants us to know, this isn't just some empty promise like the false prophets. Remember the false prophets were saying, uh, uh, the temple will never be destroyed. Our city will never be defeated. We're not going into exile. Oh, yeah, he's, he, the king took some people, but they'll be back in two years. No, don't worry about that. Babylon's going to realize they made a mistake against all our people back any day now. And those were false, empty promises, the kind of promises maybe politicians are apt to make. But this isn't a politician's promise in these two verses, is it? This is the Lord's declaration. You can bank on it. And yes, he's going to demolish and destroy and cause disaster. But what's he also going to do? He's going to build and plant. He's going to restore. He's going to take this destruction. He's going to make something good out of it. Something's going to die, and then life's going to result. Doesn't that sound like how a seed works? He said, I'm going to plant you, Judah, like a seed. And what happens? You have to take that seed or that tomato or that apple, and you put it in the ground, and it dies. But if you wait long enough, and you provide enough water, and if you're good at growing things, unlike me, you can maybe have an apple tree or a tomato plant, and you could be having green tomatoes. In a couple of months. And if you planned ahead, you have them now. But there's hope. Right now, God is planting the seed of redemption. And He's going to have to tear up everything and uproot everything. He's going to till the land. He's going to wipe it all out. But you know what? God said, I'm just planting a garden for you. That's all I'm doing, Jerusalem. That didn't work out. So I'm going to get rid of the old garden. I'm going to put some new soil down. And you just wait and see what I'm going to do. That I'm planting you in hope, even though right now I'm tearing things up. And that's exactly what God's up to here. He says, look, it's time for planting and rebuilding. I tried to garden. It didn't work out. We're going to do things a little differently this time. And I'm going to show you what I can do. And so, yes, there's the tearing down and demolishing and destroying we see in verse 28. But I'm going to watch over you. And then I'm going to build you and plant you again. And this was a key thing, I think, that the the people had missed when they started living their own way. And they stopped listening to God's instructions on how to live. And they got self-reliant instead of relying on God. And all these are things that dangers even we as believers can fall into that trap, right? Where I got it, I got it. Thanks, God, but I got today handled. That's really not a good way to start the day, by the way, because God is very quick to teach me a lesson. Just about time, I think I got it all under control. Yeah, he wants to let me know. Yeah, you don't really have it under control, but if I'm watching over you, everything's going to be okay, Scott. They forgot to rely on God, and that's what led them. They, They forgot to obey God, they forgot to rely on God, and it didn't work out. But God's going to teach them to do those very things, and he's going to restore them and redeem them. That's the whole idea. And so in light of this, let's look at a verse that we've heard it recently, and it's really resonated with me lately. Psalm 127 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Our success is totally dependent on God. Any success we have, praise the Lord. He made it possible. And if we leave God out of the equation, then our successes are going to fizzle out very quickly. And we're going to work harder and try to maintain them. And we're going to stress ourselves out for nothing because human effort does not bring true success. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord builds the city, unless the Lord builds the nation, it's going to eventually crumble, just like Jerusalem was about to crumble before Jeremiah's very eyes. And it's not just true. Look, if Israel can only make it a couple hundred years, And all these other empires have faded off the map. Well, if America turns from God, we're just gonna be the next example of a nation that fades away into irrelevance. And that's the way it is. But the fact is, if we trust the Lord, if he watches over us, isn't that what he said in verse 28? I will watch over them to build and to plant. If the Lord is in charge of the work, it's gonna prosper. And the reason they failed the first time is that people turned away from God and became self-reliant and rebellious. We're going to do it our way. And the end is total destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. The, the temple is burned. The walls are torn down. That's the result. And we're right at that point in history. It's about to happen in about 587 B.C. So there we are. But Jeremiah wakes up. Isn't this a cool verse to read right after we read verse six? At this I awoke, or verse twenty-six. At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been most pleasant to me. Who gave Jeremiah that pleasant sleep? The Lord. The Lord. It wasn't the sleep doctor. It wasn't was on the right medications now. The Lord gave him that sleep. If you're not living in peace, try prayer. Because it's ultimately, I know there's legitimate medical issues. If you got some pain, I'm not going to get, I mean, by all means, take your ibuprofen or, or aspirin or whatever, right? There's things we can do for physical ailments. But for spiritual ailments, we need faith in the Lord. That's the only thing that will bring us true peace. And that is what we need to know. Trust him. He will watch over and build and plant in due time. Don't let the everyday events Because I tell you, and maybe you're the same as me, I read the news and I just get depressed. What is wrong with our country? What is wrong with that leader and that leader and that leader and that part of Congress? And and, 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 what is wrong with these people? But I get my eyes off the Lord and on the people, then I get all stressed. Get your eyes off the people. Get your eyes on the Lord. He will never let us down. He will build the house and he gives his beloved sleep. Trust in his promises because they will not fail. And then a second cross-reference, just a few verses out of Deuteronomy chapter 30, I've been mentioning. God said all along that he was going to bring them into the promised land. He was going to pack them up and send them out of the promised land for disobedience. And he was going to bring them back again. And if you have time, I would encourage you to read all of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Remember, this is Moses writing before they ever stepped foot in the promised land. God knew from the beginning that the Israelites were going to goof it up. He knew we were sinners before we ever sinned. God is not surprised or dismayed when we mess up. He knew we would need a remedy. That's what we're going to get into in just a minute. So back here... I'm skipping over verse 1 through 7 for the sake of time. But Deuteronomy chapter 30, and again, this is, the, this is the restoring part after they've been and then they got kicked out of the promised land. And in verse 8, Moses says, And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. Notice again, right? Because they had messed up and not obeyed him. And then he brought them back. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand in the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground. He's building the house, isn't he? He's nourishing them like he talked about in Deuteronomy 31. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord to keep his commandments and his statutes. And this is last part. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You notice... Even Moses knew it was a heart problem. You know, there's nothing wrong with God's law. That's not the problem. The problem is our we don't have hearts that are attuned to follow God's law without God's help. We need a changed heart. And the Israelites did not have a changed heart. They had a stubborn, stubborn heart. And they had a wayward heart. We need a heart transplant before we can serve the Lord, do though. And that's what we get in the gospel. That's why we need it. A new covenant that we're about to talk about. Before we get to that, let's talk about a little proverb. Well, first, let's fill in the next part of the outline. Let's not forget to do that, teacher. Um, A stable contentment. That's what we see in the first four verses. That God is, is offering them hope and peace it says, I'm going to bring you back, and everything's going to be stable, and you're going to be content in the land. And then a secure cultivation. God says, I'm going to watch over you. If God's watching over you. You got anything to worry about? He's the best security team ever, right? Do you have a security system, yes, I have angels all around my house. There you go, right? So God is watching over them. The best security you can have, and he's cultivating them. I'm going to build and plant, okay? So that's where we are. And now, getting into verse 29 and 30, this is a a phrase that comes up here and in Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel and Jeremiah were somewhat contemporaries. Jeremiah a little earlier than Ezekiel in terms of being prophets. So here's what Jeremiah says in verse 29. In those days, it will never again be said, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on end. Rather, each will die for his own iniquity. Anyone who eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on him. What I'm going to say here just briefly is there was a false charge. And the false charge was, we're only in trouble because the prior generation messed up. Isn't it? Now, it's, it's funny to me as a teacher because you can always say, well, I would teach, you know, I was in high school. I could teach these kids that the middle school teachers had done their job. And then I got to college. Well, I can teach these kids as the high school teachers. Had done. We got, we're really good at passing the buck. Huh? So-and-so didn't do his job. I can't do my job now. This is this horrible. I can't do this. Now, come on. The fact is that the people of that day were saying, the only reason we're struggling is because our elders, messed up and we're having to pay the price. They ate sour grapes and then our teeth are like, Everybody bite into a sour grape? Mm-hmm. The small ones are real dangerous, right? Oh it's just a little grape. I'll eat that one too. Whoa, what is that? Sour, right? Like something like candy that's sweet and sour and you don't know what kind of candy it is. Like you weren't ready for the sour. You weren't prepared. What is this in my mouth? And they were saying, our mouth is good. Ugh. But it's not our fault like wouldn't it be crazy if, if somehow you're connected to some some kind of psychic connection and and they ate something you didn't like and you could taste it and, and who? that wouldn't be fair right but the fact is that's not the way the world works right just because your spouse eats you know in my case like a mushroom i am not a mushroom guy and it's funny because um even like in an italian dish i would pick out the mushrooms I just don't like the flavor of mushrooms. It just doesn't. It's not my thing. Like get those, get that fungus away from me. All right? I want to be fungus free. All right. So, so the mushrooms. So if you ever, never mind. But anyway, mushrooms are. I would separate those. My dad. He would always put like the big mushrooms and green peppers in the spaghetti. And the first thing I would do would just set them all to the side. And then I would eat my spaghetti. I liked everything. I liked the onions. I liked the meat. and Everything. You know, I was a picky kid. Just you know, pray for my mom to give her an extra prayer for all that she had to put up with. But the fact is that this proverb was really a jab at God, wasn't it? They were really saying God's not just because we're suffering for the sins of our fathers. It is true that the sins of their fathers are affecting them. But the fact is that generation was self sinful. They, it's not like they've gotten everything right. It's not like they were holy. It's not like they were following God's commands. They had their share of the blame, too. So this was a false charge. It was a clever saying, but it wasn't true. They were not suffering just because of their predecessors. They were also guilty of their own sins. They were sinners just like the prior generation was. So he's saying, look, that's not the way it is or the way it's going to be. This proverb is going to go away. I'm going to make it totally clear to you, because you're the one that's confused, not me, God is saying, that everybody pays for their own sin, and I'm going to do that in the form of a new covenant that focuses more on the individual and less on the nation, because I need to teach you a little better, because you're confused, right, that's what God is saying. The only reason you're saying this proverb is you got it wrong, all right, you got this cool sound bite that sounds good on the news. But it's actually not correct, God is saying. And I'm going to make sure this saying dies down. That everybody understands that you pay for your own sin, your own iniquity. If you eat sour grapes, you're the one that's going to have your mouth reacting and recoiling at the sourness. And you can't blame it on anybody else. All right. Now, this also appears in the book of Ezekiel. He talks about this very same um, saying. And we're just going to look at the first four verses, but that entire chapter is devoted to this. So Ezekiel actually has more to say about this than Jeremiah does. But the fact that they both brought it up shows us this was a very common expression at that time in Israel and Judah. I should say Judah because of Israel. Now, Ezekiel was over with the exile, so He was actually somewhere in the Babylonian Empire for his ministry. And he says, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten, eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Notice verse 4, them. behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. And here it is. The soul who sins shall die. Sin is a personal responsibility. Every person will answer for their own sin, right? So that means you don't go to heaven just because grandma had perfect attendance in Sunday school. You have to have your own relationship with God. And again, it's not even based on things like perfect attendance. And remember when they had those pins and all that? That was a long time ago, wasn't that? But the fact is that we each answer to God for our own sin, and we each have a personal need for forgiveness. And that was something that in all of this mess that the country had gotten into, people lost sight of. So less time worrying about groups of people and more time is worrying about ourselves. That's what God wants us to do. And that's the message coming from both of these prophets at that time. All right. Also, I might take a quick look at Deuteronomy 24:16 when you get a chance. I'm trying to remember. That, but I think that's along the same line, so I forgot exactly what is that scripture, but trust me, it's good. <laughs> All right, so third part of our lesson today, God is saying, listen, there's going to be a separate accounting. You don't get lumped in with anybody else. It's you and your sin. You deal with your sin if you want to have a relationship with a holy God. You can't blame anyone else. You separately will give account for what you've done. And whether your sin debt is paid or not. That is the deal it is. We know that's the way it is in the gospel, right? Groups don't get in. Okay? Regardless of what we decide to do as a church and all of our transactions, you don't get in because you're with the right group. You get in because you have had your sins forgiven and you have made peace with God yourself. That's the only way it can be. So that brings us to the last part. As we get into, well, a new... Covenant, and why do we need it, and what do we have? And we're actually very familiar with this as believers, but this was a new idea that there's a superior covenant on the way. So let's look at verse 31 through 34. It sounds like a repeat, but it's a different verse. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration: When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make. With the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their Hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Can I have an amen? that's the new covenant what's the answer to sin living really carefully and fearfully not good enough even with all of God's threats and warnings they would not behave they were not capable of living a holy life before God we need a changed heart as we saw in verse 33 We need a personal relationship. They will all know me in verse 34. And we need personal forgiveness for our sins. We need God to not remember our sins anymore. We need God to separate us from our sins like the East is from the West. That's what we need. And that's what was provided in Jesus Christ when he came and died on the cross for us. So that's what we get into here, that we need a new covenant. The old one failed, and God knew it was going to fail, like we already talked about. But God had the answer already in mind. Isn't it great? I always heard, like, you don't go to the boss with a problem unless you also have a solution to offer. The boss doesn't want to hear a problem without a solution. Otherwise, what's he paying me for? Well, Jeremiah tells us about the problem, but he also tells us that God has the solution. It's the gospel that we celebrate day after day. So God had made a lot of covenants in the past. He made one with Noah, where Noah built the ark and survived the flood. He made promises through Abraham. Remember, he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And all of that was looking ahead to the solution to our sin problem that was going to come through the Messiah, through Jesus. And we think about, though, all these words of Moses, we already saw in Deuteronomy that Moses already had implied that you're going to mess up and God's going to have to bring you back again, and then he's going to bless you. But that same Moses told them that he was going to raise up a prophet that they were going to have to listen to, and that prophet was going to have the solution to our sin problem, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Now, aren't we glad that he opened it up to more than just the Jews? In Romans chapter 9, we realize some of the Jews didn't accept the message, and he opened it up to to the whole world, to believe, and that's where we are. We don't have to even be a Jew to find this relationship with God, these changed hearts. Now, where does this idea of a new covenant come up in the New Testament? Does it ever get mentioned? Let's think about that as we kind of bring it together. We see all the good things, though, going on, right? We see that we needed a new covenant. We see that we needed the changed heart the personal relationship, and the personal forgiveness. All of that is here. Well, look at, first of all, Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to mention this one briefly and spend more time on the second cross-reference. But the argument in the book of Hebrews is that we needed Jesus to come because the Old Testament was not good enough. It was never meant to solve our problems relating to God. And it says that in verse 18, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect but what do we have in Jesus a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God that we can know him that we can have a relationship with him despite our sin but our sin problem has to be addressed right Things have to be forsaken and forgiven so Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant that we needed something better than what the Jews had through Moses now we look at Luke chapter 22, and notice we've seen these verses a lot, don't we? The ones on the screen in blue. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the what? The new covenant in my blood. Did you realize in the Lord's Supper that Jesus was quoting Jeremiah, chapter 31? He was referring to the promise that God made. In fact, that promise is also quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. Jeremiah was announcing the gospel. He was announcing that Jesus was going to come and die for our sins and provide us a new way to relate to God. And that is what we need. And if our hope is in anything else, it's going to let us down. It must be in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, his shed blood. And our trust in that is the only way our sins can be forgiven. Because we will never live good enough. We will never try hard enough. We will never be good enough to be accepted by God. We must come to him through Jesus. That is our new covenant. That is what we celebrate, that we have access to God through the cross. That is what we have, and that is what we commemorate with the Lord's Supper. And that is what Jeremiah is announcing on the eve of destruction. God is sending hope to the world. It's going to be a couple hundred years before the angels appear in a dream to Joseph, like he appeared in a dream to Jeremiah, announcing the good news is here. And it's been a long time since that dream happened. But we have hope. But Remember where your hope is. It is not in the world system. It's not a world full of sinners. It's in a risen Savior who died for our sins. That is our hope. And that is the hope that uh, Peter offered in Acts chapter 2. To repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That is the gospel. But I hope that there's a day in your life that you had a spiritual birthday, that you accepted the gospel. But if somehow you have sat in church year after year and you have never accepted the death of Jesus for your sins, then you've been sitting in church lost all of these years. You must do business with God and repent of your sins to go to heaven. So make sure you've done your business and then make sure you share the good news with those who need it. A superior covenant is what Jesus was going to provide. And on the eve of the city's destruction, Jeremiah had a message of hope, and I hope it's an encouragement to you today. Coming up, Jeremiah chapter 35, God is worthy. Jeremiah chapter 36, God speaks. A lot of good stuff to go through, but I hope the message of consolation was an encouragement to you today. You've got your hand that you can read through the summary of what we talked about today. Let's close up in a brief word of prayer. Lord, thank you that you've got everything under control. because I just seem to always make a mess of everything. And I just never, a lot of times I don't have the solution to the problems in front of me, and I, I struggle to figure out what to do sometimes. But you knew from the foundation of the world that we were going to be sinners and that we needed a Savior. And you had the plan of redemption worked out from the beginning. You're never surprised when we mess up. You never stopped loving us. You've made a way for our sins to be forgiven. You have already changed many of our hearts when we accepted Jesus and you sent the Holy Spirit. And you teach us from the inside out how to live for you. We thank you for that because on our own, we could never live a holy life. But you've transformed us. And you've shown us your will. And you live inside of us so that we can act out your will. But we thank you most of all that we don't have to worry about the, the, the sword of the Lord's judgment coming down on us. That we have a personal relationship with you. And our sins are forgiven. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we don't have to live under the old covenant in fear, but we can live in peace and joy and hope. Help us to share a message in a, in a world that just seems to be going crazy, full of agony and anger and discontent. And let us find our contentment in you. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.